If you would open your Bibles this morning to John's Gospel, chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 24 through 28 this morning. John chapter 1, verses 24 through 28. A sermon entitled, The Prophet Who Was Never Enough. Let's back up and begin reading in verse 19 for the full context of what is transpiring here this morning in the Gospel. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent him to priests and Le- when John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, "Who are you?" And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, "I am not the Christ." They asked him, "What then? Are you Elijah?" And he said, "I am not. Are you the prophet?" And he answered, "No." When they said to him, "Who are you so that we may give an answer?" To those who sent us, what do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them saying, I baptize in water. But among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, For he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifest to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to see Jesus clearly this morning. We pray also that you would help us to understand a right response to him. That we would be humbled beneath his greatness and beneath his glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Every one of us knows what it is like to labor and to strive in some measure and to give of ourselves in order to satisfy a certain demand that is placed upon us. You moms do it intuitively. You do it naturally as God has infinitely designed for you to be mothers. And from conception to caring to delivering to raising to keeping your children alive you know what it is to labor and to strive and to give a a hundred percent effort all the time to satisfy that demand of motherhood men we are called to labor and to provide for our families and to meet that expectation that god laid out for us in our masculine mandate that we would lead and protect and provide and feed our families 
All of us have given in some way maximum effort to satisfy what is required. It takes work. It takes labor. For most of us, we also know the pain of what it is to labor and to work and to reach a certain point and to be told that our work has not been accepted or that it is rejected in some way, that it's not good enough and yet still more is required because we did it in a wrong way or something of that nature. And those are frustrating times, aren't they? We know what that's like. That's painful. It's, it's rejection. It's unforgettable. And none of us like that. There is a man in the text this morning, John the Baptist, who was repeatedly told by the religious leaders of his day that he was not enough. That he wasn't adequate. That he was out of line. That his work was unappreciated. He was never enough. And yet John was content with that because John was also content with living as one who was not enough in light of his Savior. John never sought the limelight. John never sought to exalt himself to the level of Jesus Christ. John was content to be a servant of the Most High God. The Lamb of God who who came to take away the sin of the world. Might I suggest this morning as we begin our sermon that in living our lives, John the Baptist's example is a stunning example. Indeed, it would be a glorious example and a glorious way of living for all of us if we determined like John to be a prophet, to be a person who was never enough. To be okay with those things because in our being not enough, Christ can be made all. And Christ can be lifted up and Christ can be glorified. In fact, if we look at verses 24 and through 28 this morning, we can conclude very safely that it is okay not to be enough. That's the entire point of the Christian life. We aren't enough. We are never enough. We will never be enough. We're not supposed to be enough so that Christ can be everything. That is John's life. That is John's example for us this morning. And so I want us to see the aspects of John's life in which he was content with, in which by proxy we should also be content with never being enough. First of all, there's the, as- the aspect of man's expectation. The aspect of man's expectation. Of all the snares that entrap Mankind, and that's all of us here this morning, every single one of us without exception. Of all the traps that ensnare mankind, I think the most cruel, the most devastating, the strongest snare is the fear of man. The expectation of others. Proverbs 29.25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever puts his trust in the Lord, he will be safe. There is a great problem that we all face in the fear of man. It's devastating for us. John the Baptist, if you read his life, and you all know his story. If you've been a Christian for any length of time and read any of the Gospels, you know the story of the Baptist. In all of his encounter in Holy Scripture, John the Baptist appears 
to be the one man who maybe more than any other did not live with this snare of the fear of man. He was absolutely fearless. He didn't care about men's ideals. He didn't care about the labels that were slapped upon him. He was perfectly free from the fear of man, as best we can tell from the accounts given to us. His expectations meant nothing to him. His only goal was to exalt Christ. His only goal was to be the voice of the one in the wilderness who prepared the way for the Messiah. And whatever else happened, well, it just happened. But he was here. He was a man on a mission. What we learn in contrast with these Pharisees who come to John this morning is that they were not interested in glorifying Christ. In fact, they were only in the business of religion for one purpose, and that was to exalt themselves. Christian, how... Often we're tempted to live the same way, to exalt ourselves, to make much of ourselves. That is not a way God intended us to live. God intended us to live a a life of insignificance compared to Christ, that we might glorify Him. These Pharisees were not interested in freeing others from the fear of man. They weren't interested in helping those under their cruel domination of demanding religious law. They weren't interested in freeing them to live with greater joy, greater God-glorifying power in their lives. No, they wanted them under their control. They wanted them to, to care and be captivated by their verdicts about their life. John the Baptist's life and ministry, while free from the fear of man, were constantly locked in conflict and engaging and exposing those wrong expectations of conformity from the Pharisees, from the Sadducees, from all of the religious leaders. The text before us this morning is simply the beginning of the Baptist's public life and his public ministry where he would be in that constant conflict with the enemies of Jesus. So we come this morning to verses 24 to 28. And as this second scene unfolds, John the Baptist interrogation continues. Look down at the text with me this morning. In verse 24, John continues to be hammered on by this delegation from Jerusalem. And now we find a new group asking the questions. Notice what it says in verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. So now the the Pharisees, you remember last week, it was the, the Levites and the priests uh, from the Sadducean uh, sect of religious leaders in the Sanhedrin. They were the ones who came last week. This week, it's the Pharisees coming. And the phraseology of the verse is, is unusual according to linguistic experts, and it serves to heighten the sense of what's transpiring. It's really odd. And it's meant to, it's, it's oddly worded so that it grabs the attention and the word now in English connects us back to what has just transpired. This is one in the same interrogation. It's just a second phase, if, if you will. It's a witness on the stand and one attorney sits down and hands off the questioning to another attorney who steps up and 
begins to question the witness. And so the Pharisees have now been handed the microphone. And they come to John the Baptist and they now want to have their questions answered. But it's a different sort of questioning. There are barbs in the questions. The questions are loaded questions. That they are meant to expose John as a heretic. So that he can be dealt with by their religious code. Now, let's stop for just a moment and ask the question, who are the Pharisees? Now, I know we all have a a stereotype. If you've read your Bibles for any length of time, you have a stereotype in your mind about who the Pharisees were. But let's just refresh our memory for a moment. The Pharisees were a devout and religious group of religious leaders. Their first coming to prominence uh, seems to have occurred in the intertestamental period between Malachi and John the Baptist coming on the scene. They were, they were descendants of uh, the Hasidians under the leadership of John, John Hyrcanus. Back during those infamous times of the Maccabees when religious zealots rose up to defend Judaism against Antiochus Epiphanes from Syria who came and sacked the temple and set up an altar to Zeus in place of the altar to Yahweh. The Pharisees traced their lineage back to the men who uh, were religious leaders who rose up and opposed that. They are also known as the people's Spiritual leaders. The, the, the Sadducees, you have to understand, the Sadducees and the priests were aristocrats, to use our parlance. They were born into a bloodline. They were revered because of their names. They were the aristocracy of the day. And you couldn't get into being a Sadducee or a Levite or a priest without being born in. The Pharisees, you could become by birth or by conversion, and they were the populist leaders of the day. They were the people's people. They they got down and mingled among the common man. In fact, most of the synagogues in Jesus' day were led not by Sadducees, priests, or Levites, but by Pharisees. They're not priestly in their line. They have no part in that. And while they were part of the Sanhedrin, they were not the driving force behind the Sanhedrin. In other words, the only power they possessed was the power of popularity among the people and what power was delegated to them by the Sadducees. And so they are not as powerful as we might think, even though they are probably more popular than we think. They were loved by the people because they were common men who didn't mind rubbing shoulders with common people. And so the Pharisees come simply as part of a delegation from Jerusalem. Now, the text says that they had been sent from the Pharisees. What this is simply indicating is that it is a group of the Pharisees within the Sanhedrin who did come. The Pharisees didn't send the entire delegation. And so they come along with the Sadducees, the Levites and the priests, to question John. In addition to the distinction between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, you have to know this, that the Sadducees were the rigid people of the Word. They were people of the law. The Sadducees added nothing and took nothing away. 
If you could not say it is written and show them in the Torah where it was written, your argument was over. The Pharisees were a little more malleable. They, they would have been considered liberal by the Sadducees because they were not interested in the written word of God. They were interested in the oral tradition. They wanted to create an oral law, an oral tradition that could be handed down. And if it is oral and it can be handed down, how many of you remember playing the game gossip? Or telephone or whatever it's called where something starts out this way on this end of the line and by this end of the line is totally... That's the Pharisees. They wanted the law to be all oral so that they could manipulate it for their own purposes. It could be changed. It could be adapted. And for this reason, the Sadducees didn't really like them too much. They were the postmoderns of their own day with laws that were constantly changing and flexible. They were innovators of the law, not proclaimers of the law. And yet they wielded tremendous power and popularity. They were persuasive men who controlled the masses. And so that is now who comes to interrogate John the Baptist. And before I go any further, this has nothing to do with the sermon. Uh, Jeffrey, could you or Terry turn down the AC in the hall? I think we get some airflow. We're having issues with this thermostat. It loves to fry everybody, but the cooling won't come on. And I see people starting to do this. So if we can get a little airflow from... This area, which is on a different thermostat, I think will be okay. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, as they say, in the old westerns. Back in the text now this morning, we have these Pharisees coming from this broader body of leadership in Jerusalem. Now, I want you to notice something. Go back to the text this morning. Look back up in verse 20. Notice what the Sadducees, the the priests and the Levites are asking. They want to know, who are you? They they want to know an identity. Are are you? Notice that that, that their questions are rooted in the text. Both from Malachi chapter 4 and from Deuteronomy. That they are asking questions based on the text of what? The word of God. Remember, they are literalists. They are the ones who are all about the scriptures. And so their their questioning is is not an out and out rejection of John the Baptist. They're wondering, are you the fulfillment of what we've read? The Pharisees, however, come and they ask a different question. Notice what they say. Why are you baptizing? Their question is not interested in who John the Baptist is. Their question is, what right do you have? By whose authority? Did you ask us if that was okay? If you're not the Christ, and you're not Elijah, and you're not Moses, as you have already stated to our co-workers, then who do you think you are? In fact, we might render it this way quite literally. The English is smoothed out a little bit for reading, but quite literally it should be translated How are you baptizing? How? By what authority, John? You tell us. 
who gave you the right, who died and made you baptizer. They were obviously present. They, they knew his previous answer to the Sadducees. And now they want to get to the heart of the matter. He has threatened their authority. He has threatened not only their authority, but what's worse, he has threatened their popularity. Because people are now beginning to leave the ranks of the synagogue and the Pharisees to go into the Judean wilderness and follow this man named John the Baptizer. That's a problem if you're a Pharisee. Your whole reason for existence is being undermined. And and so they come and they want to dismantle and understand and figure out what to do about this man who is preaching so boldly. Who is garnering and gathering a crowd of followers. They said, John, how is it then that you're baptizing? By what right? By what authority? You know, you, you, you kind of, some of us probably want to jump in and say, you know, we could ask you the same question. By what authority are you doing anything that you've done because you've entirely warped the law of God? Question goes both ways, guys. Because yours is not a Levitical or inherited or a, an Old Testament office. You've created your own office. So by what authority do you even question me? John doesn't respond that way. John responds with humility. And unless we think, just a note on baptism here for just a moment, unless we think that baptism might be relegated to a New Testament practice only observed in the church among Christians in the New Testament age, we would be wrong to think that. Baptism actually occurred quite frequently even in the Old Testament and in the intertestamental period and in the period in which John the Baptist is alive for two reasons. If a Gentile proselyte converted to Judaism, he would be, the male of the family would be circumcised, but then the entire family, men, women, and children, would all be baptized to signify that their Gentileness, their paganness, had been washed away once they had converted to Judaism. And so they would undergo a Jewish baptism to enter into the covenant family of the Jews. Secondly, some Jewish sects such as the Essenes and the Qumran community that considered themselves more holy and more pious, the monks of their day, if you will, would wake up every morning and baptize themselves to show that they were pure and that they were clean for that day. And so it wasn't altogether unusual to see someone being baptized what bothers the pharisees is this john is baptizing not gentiles he's not a monk he is baptizing jews who are members of the covenant community in good standing he is baptizing them he's now messing with their people he has proselytizing in other words and they are angry about this why john do you feel it necessary to baptize and call for repentance those whom we have trained in the most holy way of the pharisees how dare you notice what john the baptist says 
He says, oh, I baptize with water. Here's the problem. Among you stands one whom you do not know. You see, they had come to John the Baptist and they were ready to unload. They were ready to give it to him. They were ready to tell him all the ways in which he was wrong. And John the Baptist, being rejected by them and yet with great humility, turns it back on them and says, you think I have the problem. Let me tell you where the real problem lies. The real problem is that one stands among you and you do not even know who he is. Leon Morrison, writing in his commentary, says at this moment it would have been a, quote, horrifying experience for the Pharisees. They have just been placed on the hot seat. The Baptist has turned the condemnation upon them. Yeah, he may not be one of their number. He may not be acceptable in their sight, even though he was a priest in the priestly line even though he he was a Levite in the Levitical line, even though he could have claimed any number of genetic rights to do what he was doing, he doesn't do that. He humbly accepts that he's not enough according to their standards. And he's okay with that. He's okay with that. And now he turns it upon them and says, listen, the problem is you guys. There stands one in your midst whom you do not know. Now think with me for a moment about what he's actually saying. These are the men who claim to be the most educated, the most enlightened. In fact, so enlightened that they can move beyond the law and start to add their own laws. By the time Jesus is on the scene, 700 and some odd laws had been added by the Pharisees to the law of Moses. These were the leading intellectuals of the day. And John says, you don't know what you need to know. You've completely missed the point. What a sting to their elite, educated minds. In all of your years of searching, in all of your years of developing this man-made religion, you have completely missed the obvious. Notice where it is that the one stands. In the midst of you. In the very middle of you. And yet you are so blind. You cannot see him. You don't know. You don't know. And by the way this word. Know that John uses here. Is not the word in the Greek. For accumulated knowledge. There's different words to communicate different types of learning, just like there are different types of love. And John the Baptist doesn't say, it's not because you haven't studied hard enough. It's that you have missed him and you don't possess the knowledge of experience. This is the word that comes from knowing something by applying truth. And John says, all of the Old Testament that you are so skilled in, all of this that you think you have mastered so well, you have never applied one jot or one tittle, therefore you are spiritually ignorant. That's a pretty big statement coming from a guy in camel hair with a leather belt and eating locusts and wild honey, isn't it? 
But with prophetic and holy boldness, he says, mine is not the problem, baptizing in water. Yours is the problem, standing all around this one whom you do not know, yet you should know. And why don't they know? They've never applied the prophecies. They've never applied the truths of the Old Testament. They have rejected it, and therefore they have not experienced the saving power of Messiah. Like those who are being baptized who are going to surrender their life to follow Messiah. John says, yours is the real problem. Not mine. You've rejected Him out of hand. Just like you've rejected me out of hand. But I'm okay. Because I know Him. I'm okay with you not being okay with me. Both John and Jesus would go on and disappoint the carnal expectations, the the lust of religious pomp and circumstance, the lust to be part of a, a religious establishment. John and Jesus both will disappoint them, frustrate them, anger them. And in the mind of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests and the Levites, Jesus and John were never enough. They didn't measure up to what they demanded. Mere knowledge. If you're listening this morning, let me just say, by way of application, mere knowledge for us is not enough to bring you into right relationship with Jesus Christ. The demons also know and believe and they tremble. But they do not possess a heart of faith. They do not possess a mind to repent. They know. They tremble at what they know. But they are as wicked as they can possibly be. Mere knowledge and zeal. It doesn't matter how zealous we are. It doesn't matter how much you serve. It doesn't matter how much you give. It doesn't matter if you don't know by application and faith the truth of who Jesus is. It will benefit you nothing. The problem with, I fear, too many in the church in America today is that we have people who know facts, but they don't know the person. And that may be to their everlasting eternal judgment if they do not repent and do not come in a heart of humility to Christ. To be born again by Him. To be changed by Him. John doesn't care what the Pharisees think. Jesus didn't care what they thought. So how is it that John the Baptist in his day, considering his father was a priest, considering his father was a Levite, considering he was raised in the system, considering he grew up listening to these men who were questioning him, preach how did he end up different than them i think the answer comes in this one word humility humility he didn't come to make much of himself he came to make much of christ he must increase i must decrease he says there's an aspect of John rejecting men's expectations. Secondly, this morning, there's an aspect of honest humility. 
How does anyone come to Christ? How are God's promises fulfilled? By faith that proceeds from a humble heart. What the Baptist acknowledges next, they could never say. What makes him different than the Pharisees? His humility. Humility before men. I don't care what you think about the Christ I serve. Humility before God. He must increase. I must decrease. And what sets him apart is what he says next. Notice the text. There stands one among you whom you do not know. He, It is he who comes after me. The thong, the strap, the tie of whose sandal I am not worthy to reach down and untie. They would never say that. Number one, they'd never get on their knees before Messiah, let alone touch his feet. You see, in John's day, in Judaism, a student who followed a teacher did not pay them monetarily, but they paid them through acts of service. They did things for their rabbis. They did things for their teacher to aid their ministries. But the one thing a student would never be asked or allowed to do for his teacher would be to untie his sandal and to touch his shoe. That was degrading. In fact, if you go to Middle Eastern culture today, it's still degrading to touch a shoe. How many of you remember the famous scene back in the Iraq war when one of the reporters takes off his shoe and throws it? You remember? That wasn't because he couldn't find anything else to throw. It's because in their culture, in that ancient Near Eastern culture, a shoe is an insult. It is degradation. It is unclean. And John, the student of Jesus, says, listen, here is who I am in relation to who He is. I am not even worthy to do the job of the lowest slave. They would go find the lowest Slave in the house, the most menial servant at the end of the day and say, untie my shoe. Student can't do that, but slave, you can. And John the Baptist says, I'm not even high enough to be that slave. I can't even touch the most filthy part of his clothing. Because I am so low and he is so high. You want to know why you don't know him, Pharisees? Because you're thinking not only should you be allowed to untie his shoe, you think you ought to replace him. You think you are better than Messiah because when Messiah came, what did we find the Pharisees doing? Panicking. Why? He was taking away their kingdom and ushering in his. No longer could they condemn with great Religious fanfare. The woman caught in adultery. Jesus forgave her and let her go. That's a problem when you want to make a show of your power. And your own piousness. Because somehow you've never been caught in that sin. Jesus comes and he exposes it all. And he takes down their kingdom and they're angry about it. And John is simply saying, you want to know why you don't know him? 
you don't possess a heart of humility that has the capability of knowing Him. Those who come to Christ must come low because He is high. They must come aware of, broken over their sin. Not competing with who He is. Because of their pride. Because of their elevated sense of self. Because of their own self-importance. Because of their own self-sufficiency. Does that sound like you? I can tell you it sounds like me far more than I want to admit. Every one of us battles pride. Every one of us battles self-sufficiency. Every one of us battles... And by the way, there, there are so many ways that can be manifest in our life, can it? It can be the outright pride of the Pharisees. It can be, you know, uh, self-pity. It can be self-selfishness. It can be, it can be any number of things. But the reality is, we are fallen creatures and really not that different than the Pharisees. We think really highly of ourselves. We are at the center. And John says that's why you can't know Him. That's why you can't walk with Him. That's why you can't follow Him. There's too much of you in the way. You must, you must humble yourself. John says both by truth and by experience, I know Him. Because I know that I am not enough. I own it. I confess it. I rejoice in it. I am nothing. Contrast to their pride that had so blinded them. And, and by the way, would continue to blind them throughout the entire ministry of Jesus. Their pride blinded them. And so because their pride, because they could not see, they rejected His authority. But the good news is this. We don't have to be enough. We don't have to be elevated. We don't, we don't have to be high. Boy, that's hard today, isn't it? The day that we live in. Because we are told that the problem that we have mostly is because we, we just need more self-esteem. No. We need more Christ-esteem. We need to think of Christ more. We need to think more highly of Christ than of others. We need to think less of ourselves, not more of ourselves. You know, when the secular psychological revolution really took root in the United States in the 40s and 50s, and you had the advent of parenting advice from guys like Dr. Spock that, you know, borrowing on Freud, you don't want to mess with the child's inner id and all of this nonsense, and you need to build them up and make them worth more and build the self-esteem, build the self-esteem, build the self-esteem. We've been doing that for decades now, and where are we? Total chaos, isn't it? It's run amok publicly in the streets for you to watch. Why? Because we've raised generations who have been told your problem is you just don't think enough of yourself. The reality is the problem is you think too much of yourself. Isaiah writes, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on high and a holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit. 
Where does God live? Where is God? He is high and exalted in a holy place. And He is also with the one who is of contrite heart. And nowhere else. In order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Jesus says that the first quality of life in the kingdom of God in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 verse 3 is this blessed are the poor in spirit theirs is the kingdom of heaven heaven's not going to be populated by the proud but by the humble by the people like John the Baptist who say I I can't even imagine being raised up high enough that I would attain to the lowest level of a slave to be able to touch his shoe. I can't fathom that. It's beyond my comprehension. The kingdom of Messiah is not made up of people who are enough. We are never enough. You want to study in that? Study the twelve apostles. My goodness. He didn't go to the people who were enough. He didn't go to the people who had it all together, who had the academic credentials. Don't we often think that way as Christians? I've heard it recently. Man, if Jordan Peterson would just become a Christian, think about the influence he could have. We don't need Jordan Peterson. I wish he would come to Christ. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? But the kingdom of God will march on. It doesn't need the popular figures of the day. It doesn't need the prized athletes of the day. It doesn't need the scholars of the day. It needs men and women, boys and girls, who say, I am nothing, but Christ is everything. Those who are of the humble faith of Abraham, of John the Baptist. John says, I'm not enough in your eyes, and I am nothing compared to him. And that's okay. Because that opens the door for me to look beyond myself and to look to Him. By the way, notice what comes next for next week. John had the privilege of preaching the greatest sermon preached by a man up to this point. Behold the Lamb of God. You know how many prophets in the Old Testament would have given their eye teeth to be the one that got to say that. Thousands of years of waiting. And John gets to say, look, there he is. There he is. What a blessing for John. What a rebuke to the Pharisees. Brothers and sisters, friends, who I cannot call brothers and sisters because you've not placed your faith in Christ. For all of us, pride will blind you from coming to Jesus. Pride will absolutely destroy your life. It will blind your eyes. It will break your legs. And you will never come to Jesus unless you humble yourself. Unless you adopt the mentality of John the Baptist. And come humble and broken to the Messiah. Those are the only people that He saves. He doesn't save the self-sufficient. He saves the humble. And if we're not willing to do that, there is no hope for us. But if we do, there is only hope for us. Psalm 34, 18, The Lord is near 
to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. To lift them up. To put their feet on a firm and a solid place. But it begins when they know in their own heart, they confess that they are not enough. Only Christ is sufficient. Christ is our only hope. This is the universal need of every human being ever born. (coughs) I want you to notice one closing detail this morning. Verse 28, these things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Bethany beyond the Jordan, this place seems to be, at least for us in our modern world, a bit confusing and perhaps even lost to history because we don't currently have a city or a direct knowledge of a city beyond (coughs) the Jordan known as Bethany, although transliteration of names is a very common thing throughout biblical history cities change names they change spellings and over time they morph or you may dig down uh, they just build cities on top of cities over there and it's that's the meaning of the word tell in hebrew it's a mound it's a city that's just been covered over by the next phase of history it may be under there somewhere more than likely it was a region called Bethania that later became Bethany. But it's not the Bethany where Jesus worked His last great miracle before His crucifixion and the raising of His friend Lazarus. It's a different Bethany than that. D.A. Carson points out that this city of Bethany mentioned here in John the Baptist's account and John's Gospel would have been north. The Bethany of John 11 where Jesus concludes His earthly ministry before going to the cross is in the south. And so, from the north to the south and across the Transjordan, across that river moving east to west, Jesus would come and He would bring salvation to His people. It would make sense that John in his own nuanced way of writing and recording things wants you to understand this, that Jesus is the Savior for the whole world. It doesn't mean that He saves the whole world, but the whole world only has one hope of salvation, and that is Him. And from the Judean wilderness of Batanea down to Bethany in the south and the raising of Lazarus into Jerusalem and everything in between, Jesus came to save sinners. To those who are humble enough to see it. And to depend upon Him wholly. This world needs Jesus. But this world must humble itself under His mighty and glorious name in order to find Him. You must humble yourself under His mighty name to find Him. Faith does not grow in the soil of pride. Faith only grows in the soil of humility. If you've not come to Jesus this morning, if you have found fellowship with Jesus difficult, perhaps it's not that you don't know enough facts. I I would venture to say that knowing you as I do, I think most of you know more facts than the average Christian in the United States. 
or the average person in the United States. You, you know more. Perhaps it's, it's that you haven't humbled yourself. You're still hanging on to your pride, your sense of self-sufficiency, what you think you know. From a prophet who sought no honor from, for himself among men or before God. We must take the example of John the Baptist and come to Jesus humbly. It's again no accident that John's Gospel records these words, these events at the very beginning of the Gospel so that you are able to absorb everything that comes after it. Otherwise, it'll mean nothing to you. Where the Pharisees questioned John, He was unfazed. When he stood before Jesus, he fell at his feet. May that be true of all of us today because God imparts an understanding and a genuine humility into us that we can see and believe. Father, thank you so much for this example of humility of one who didn't try to be enough among men and did not try to be enough before You. May we see this as an example of faith and may we be quick to run and to imitate and to do the same. Holy Spirit, we are proud people. You know this. But You have a way of working to crush our pride. We pray that our pride would be crushed that You would place in us a humility both before God and men that embraces not our sufficiency, not our good work, not our attempts, but the sufficiency and the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone that can save. And I do pray, Holy Spirit, that if there is one this morning who has walked through these doors, one who may be watching online, that you would work that work of breaking their pride and bringing them to faith in Jesus Christ. Cause them to look to Jesus and Jesus alone for their hope. These things we pray, Lord Jesus, that you might be made much of And that with John the Baptist, we would continually decrease so that you might increase and be seen and believed upon and loved more and more. Both in us and in those with whom we have an audience. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.